In this chapter um, 15 of Luke, he, Jesus tells three stories with one common theme. Something of value was lost, and now it's been found. First a sheep, then a coin, and then not one, but two sons. Luke tells us that Jesus was being judged by the Pharisees and legal experts on the basis of the company that he kept. The message of this translation, its opening verses, helps us know to whom Jesus directed these parables. I will read it, the intro, and then, um, then we'll hear the reading of these stories. By this time, a lot of women and men of doubtful reputations were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. Suppose someone among you had 100 sheep and lost one of them. Wouldn't he leave the other 99 in the pasture and search for the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he is thrilled and places it on his shoulders. When he arrives home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me, I've found my lost sheep. In the same way I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who changes both heart and life than over 99 righteous people who have no need to change their hearts and lives. Or what woman, if she owns 10 silver coins and loses one of them, won't light a lamp and sweep the house, searching her home carefully until she finds it? When she finds it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, celebrate with me because I've found my lost coin. In the same way I tell you, joy breaks out in the presence of God's angels over one sinner who changes both heart and life. Jesus continued, a certain man had two sons. The younger son said to his father, Father, forgive me. Father, give me my share of the inheritance. Then the father divided his estate among them, and soon afterwards, the younger son gathered everything together and took a trip to a land far away. And there he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. The son longed to eat his fill from the, what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have more, food, more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired hands. So he got up and went to his father. 
While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. His father ran to him and hugged him and kissed him. Then his son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine has, was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was coming in from the field. And as he approached the house, he heard music and dancing. The older son called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. The servant told him, your brother has arrived and your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he received his son back safe and sound. Then the older son was furious and didn't want to enter the house. But his father came out and begged him. The older son said to his father, look, I've served you all these years. I never disobeyed your instruction. Yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours returned after gobbling up our estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. The word of the Lord. I almost shortened the reading to just the story of the two sons, but I'm glad the way you read it, I'm glad I did not. The Pharisees and religious leaders thought Jesus was no better than the sinners and misfits, the social outcasts he welcomed. They thought to themselves, if Jesus was truly a teacher of Jewish piety and theology, much less the Messiah, then he wouldn't associate with such people. The irony is, as you listen to this, they are the elder brother looking at Jesus as the wayward brother, the lost brother. The thing about Scripture is that when we read it, it's like a mirror that we put up. We think we can see um, who's righteous and who's not just by looking out among our, our friends and relatives and, and strangers. But the gospel always makes us look at ourselves and understand our relationship to God in light of how the gospel reads us rather than the way we read it. Literature and film do the same thing. The best film I've seen that depicts the the Lost Sheep is, is a foreign film of some years ago called Not One Less. It's about a Chinese uh, teacher in a rural community that it's a one-room schoolhouse and they, the officials can't afford anything but chalk 
for the instruction. And then the teacher is called away because of a family, a death in the family. So he turns to the oldest child and says, you must continue teaching. And in order for us to have the adequate supplies that we have, every student has to be here when I return. So when I come back, there should be not one less. So imagine what happens when one of the students leaves the village to go into the inner city to work, to find work. The oldest student has to go search for that student. You see, that's what the oldest brother should have done when his younger brother left home as well. He should have been the one to say, no matter what, I've got to go find my brother. I've got to bring him home. But that's not how someone of upright religious standing and someone who attends church on a regular basis and reads the scriptures and, and tries to honor God in, in his or her behavior looks upon someone who's lost. The combination of these stories reaches a climax in the parable of the lost son. Unlike the sheep and the coin, the lost son is lost because of his own actions. The story tells us how this son experienced utter degradation due to his rebellious choices. So he ends up working for a Gentile, which is, which is implied by the fact that he's left his homeland for a far-off country. Anything outside of the land would be Gentile territory. And not only is he working for a Gentile, of which the religious um, leaders would have said, oh, but he, he finds himself in so, such dire straits that he, he hires on to feed pigs, the most unclean animal from Jewish food laws. If anyone deserved what he got, it was this ungrateful, self-serving, reckless young man. Like the other two parables, the story moves to a time of celebration upon finding that which has been lost. And yet, in this last story, it doesn't end there. The focus turns to the response of the older brother, and with that Incident, Jesus uses this to catch his listeners off guard. Rather than see this parable as a story of one lost son, we do better to think of it as a story of two lost sons. The older son is nothing like his shameful younger brother, ever, ever reliable and responsible. We're introduced to him as working out in the field, having just come in. He's been doing the work and supporting the household. And then there's a festivity going on. Have you ever encountered something that is happening in your own home or, or perhaps your office place and everybody's celebrating and you have no clue what's going on? You haven't been informed? That's an odd feeling. It's like, why is there a party in my house? And why, why wasn't I consulted? 
So when he learns from a hired hand what's going on, he's filled with rage, with disgust. And who is it aimed at? His father. How could he? How could he squander even more on this son of his? This undeserving son of his who has, who's messed up his own life. He should be responsible. So he disapproves of his father's choice and refuses to go in. So if the younger brother is like the tax collectors and sinners who are irresponsible and irreligious as, as Jews, then the older brothers like the Pharisees and the religious leaders who maintain strict devotion and adherence to the law. People God could be proud of. Later in Luke's gospel, he tells us in chapter 19 that Jesus described his work as that of a rescue mission. He says he had come to seek and to save that which is lost. Now, I don't know about you, but most people I know never want to be described as lost. They don't want that as a descriptor of their present current state or condition. They might say it of themselves. They might even be willing to sing amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found. In other words, yeah, one time I think I messed up or I, I kind of got off track, but I'm back. Uh, and they're, they're willing to sing that. But we don't want someone else describing us that way. The startling point of this parable is that Jesus applies this descriptor not only to the younger brother, but equally to the older. In doing so, he turns all religious convictions of how to connect with God, how to win favor and approval with God, upside down, completely dismantles what they, what they believed. The older brothers of this world think it is the self-serving freedom and self-seeking younger brothers who are the lost ones. Whereas the younger brothers of this world see themselves as open-minded and tolerant people in comparison with their bigoted, narrow-minded older brothers. And they're the ones who are lost. Jesus says, we're all lost. The humble are in because they know it. They know how lost they are. It's the proud who are out because they can't see. People who confess they aren't particularly good or open-minded, they're the ones who are moving toward God because the prerequisite for receiving God's gross, grace, not gross, God's grace is to know you have need of it. We can't live without it. The younger brother's estrangement from the father is rather obvious. He left physically and morally a long time ago. But before he left, in effect, he wished that his father was dead. That's the only way the inheritance could be divided. The elder brother would have received two-thirds of the inheritance, the younger one-third. And so he says... 
Father, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance now. I don't want to wait until after. I don't want to wait any longer. I've been living under your rule and your, and your household for too long. I want to live my own life. Though the older brother stayed home, he proved to be just as distant and alienated from his father as the younger brother. Yet whereas the younger knew he was alienated from his father, the older brother did not. He is blind to his true condition, and therefore this is why Jesus tells the story. If you want a modern version of this prodigal story, I recommend Marilyn Robinson's book called Home. It's a powerful modern-day version of, of a son of a minister, no less, who has come home. Um, and then you learn all of the family dynamics that made him leave in the first place. I think Tim Keller's book, The Prodigal God, is one of the best treatments of this parable because he helps us see the significance of the gospel in light of it. Now, you probably think to yourself, prodigal God, why does he call it that? Keller says the meaning of prodigal does, is not wayward, but rather reckless extravagance. You heard that translation that he lived recklessly in an extravagant way but Keller thinks that applies more to the father than it does to the son he's the one who's reckless and extravagant and running to meet his son who has shamed the family and then coming out to address the older son when he when he the older son had had publicly humiliated his father by not being part of the feast. In each instance, the father's the one who's extravagant with his love and reckless in the manner in which he applies it. Keller says, there are two basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment. One is the way of moral conformity and the other is the way of self-discovery. The older brother represents the way of moral conformity with the belief that the will of God and the standards of the community are more important than my own individual fulfillment. The younger brother represents the way of self-discovery. This paradigm holds that individuals must be free to pursue their own goals and self-actualization regardless of custom and convention. In fact, it may be necessary to buck tradition, and authority in order to pursue one's freedom. These individuals define right and wrong for themselves rather than have it come from outside them. Well, most of us tend to be, especially as Presbyterians, tend to be um, the moral conformists. We're the ones who who um, live our lives trying to please God and honor God and keep the, keep the moral 
uh, tradition and teach it. Religious people are, are very common in their attempt to do this. But here's the amazing thing of what Keller points out. He says their goal is to get leverage on God. Whoa. To put God in a position where they think God owes them. Therefore, despite all their ethical fastidiousness and piety, they're actually rebelling against God's authority. If like the older brother, we believe that God ought to bless us and help us because we've worked hard to obey him and to be a good person, then Keller says Jesus may be our helper and even our inspiration, but he's not our savior. In effect, we serve as our own savior. After all, we've done everything that is right and should be acceptable and pleasing to God, and therefore God owes us. Older brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself, either to resemble him, to love him, to know him, or to simply delight in him. If, like the older brother, we seek to control God through our obedience, then all our efforts at morality are just a way to use God to make him give us things in life that we really want. The resentful refuser of the elder brother to go into the feast shows that he wasn't interested in the father's happiness. That had never been his goal. He wanted what he wanted. And he was going, he, he would do what was necessary for the father in order to get what he wanted. I grew up thinking that what it meant to be right with God, what it meant to please God was to keep the rules, to not, to not move outside of the boundaries. And so whenever it came to confession, and the church I grew up in didn't confess like we do as a regular practice, but if there was ever a preacher or somebody who said we should confess, we should admit our faults and our wrongdoing, I sometimes struggle to figure out what would I say? What have I done wrong this week? Or, um, or in my lifetime, I've, I've tried to keep the rules. I, I'm a pretty good person. God must be proud of me. I know I am. And then I grew up and I read C.S. Lewis. And he described pride as the worst sin of all. And I thought, whoa. Pride is what kept the elder brother out of the feast. And if you think about it, each, of our, each person's pride is in direct competition with everyone else's. It's, a simp is, it's essentially our competitive nature. The elder brother has a strong sense of his own superiority. He points out how much better his own moral record is than that of his brother. After all, he squandered everything on, on immoral living. 
as if to say, I would never do such a thing. In other words, he's saying to his father, how could you squander your love on that rather than on me? And he cannot forgive his brother for the way he has weakened the family's standing in society, the way he's disgraced their name, and he's diminished their wealth. He's angry because the son has already taken a third of the inheritance and left, and now the fathers welcome him back as a member of the family. He's going to lay claim to more. And whose inheritance is it? It's the older brother's. He's got to pay the price for this younger brother's repeated offenses. It's impossible for the older brother to forgive someone to whom he feels superior. His spiritual problem is the radical insecurity that comes from basing his self-image on achievements and performance such that he endlessly props up his sense of righteousness by finding fault and putting others down. Here's how C.S. Lewis describes it. In God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud person is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see that which is above you. Jesus doesn't resolve the story. He doesn't tell us what the outcome is. Will the older brother swallow his pride and come in to join the feast? Will he honor his father's choice and publicly affirm his father? Will he reconcile with his brother? As long as pride consumes him, as long as pride defines him, as long as his good works that he's so proud of before God gets in the way, he will never understand the grace of God and receive it the way his younger brother was able to do. We are like that elder brother. We have to be careful to continually confess that we want to rely on ourselves even in our spiritual undertaking. We have every reason to present ourselves in need of God's grace and God's mercy. And then to look upon others with the same graciousness and love and acceptance. We, like the elder brother, have to see one another, to see our own brothers and sisters through the eyes of his Father. So God, help us.
We're going to sing now about God's amazing grace, and I wanted to let you know that we